Okay, good evening. Tonight we will be in Luke chapter 3. So if you all turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. And once you get there, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janiah, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Maath, or the son of Joseph, the son of Joda, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. All right, so this is the lineage of Christ. These 77 names, some known, some unknown, they all speak to the history of the genealogy of Christ. They all speak to the history of his lineage. And to start, we're all going to turn to Matthew chapter 1 and to check out this other lineage that we see, this other genealogy account in Scripture. Um, the very first chapter of Matthew, the very first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. But I'm actually not going to have you read through it because you can't sit through another reading of the genealogy. But if you turn your attention to verse 2, we see that Matthew's account of this genealogy starts with Abraham. And starting with Abraham, it descends all the way down to Christ. And in Luke's genealogy, as we saw, it begins with Christ and traces all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And the first difference is this, is that Matthew's genealogy is writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew's audience is Jewish, and so it makes sense for him to trace from Abraham all the way through Christ and not all the way back to the son of Adam, the son of God. And Luke's gospel is written to Jews and Gentiles. That both Jews and Gentiles, salvation has been, been made available to them. And through this salvation, it goes all the way back through Adam, the son of God. And that Christ came not just to redeem the nation of Israel, but he came to make salvation available to all people. And so these differences in Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, you see 77 names in Luke's and roughly 46 in Matthew's, um, very differing genealogies. And the question we ask is, does this present a problem for us as Christians? Does it present a problem for us who hold the Word of God to be our supreme authority? And if we dive into these differences, we can see that they don't just contradict each other, 
but they actually unite an even greater argument that is the lineage of Christ. And there's disagreement on this even in the church today. Disagreement among theologians as to how to actually interpret these two genealogies. And there's two main schools of thought um, of theologians that land on how to interpret these. We're just going to touch on one today so we don't spend 45 minutes unpacking different ways to interpret the genealogy. But this first one, and the main one that's a general consistent consensus among conservative theologians, is this that Matthew's genealogy is the legal genealogy of Christ through his father, Joseph. His legal father, since Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit, Joseph did not conceive Christ. So he's Jesus' legal father, but not his blood father. And Matthew's account is the legal genealogy of Joseph, and that Luke's is the bloodline and the genealogy through Mary. And if you'll see here, though, it says Joseph in Luke's genealogy, but... Um, if you or in my studies, I found this uh, Jewish Talmud was a r- book of law that the Jews had um, early on that used as well as the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. And early on in history, the Jewish Talmud recorded that Jesus was the illegitimate son of Mary, since he was not truly the blood son of Joseph. And the genealogies are most commonly traced through men in that era. And so this Talmud records that Jesus was the son of Mary, and Mary was the son of Heli, who we see here that Joseph, the son of Heli, um, and that Mary, as married to Joseph, Joseph was the son-in-law of Heli, and as recording men throughout the genealogies, is Joseph that's traced through Heli, that's then traced through the rest of Mary's genealogy. So, slightly confusing, but they're differing names all the way back through David. Here in Luke's genealogy and also in Matthew's record of the genealogy, the names are different all the way back until David's sons, Nathan and Solomon. And in verse 31, in Luke, we see it traces all the way back through Nathan, the son of David. And in Matthew's account, we see that it traces back through David's son, Solomon. And so they're varying names throughout the rest of it. So they speak to two different genealogies. So it makes sense that Joseph, as Mary's husband, is the son-in-law of Heli. Then it continues on with the rest of Mary's lineage, and Matthew is the record of Joseph's lineage. There's two common names in between Christ and David, and once it gets to David, the rest of it is the same between the two, um, besides Matthew's account that doesn't account for the rest of it past Abraham. But these two similar names are Zerubbabel and Sheltiel. You see that in Matthew 1.12 and in Luke 3.27. They're the two only common names in between Christ and David. And the reason for these two common names and the best argument is that um, legally, through Joseph's line, it comes up to these two other guys, Zerubbabel, Sheltiel, and through Mary's line, it comes with them at different points in time. Seeing them at different points in Scripture indicates that as common names in Jewish custom, as common names in the Old Testament, it would be common for people to name their son Zerubbabel or Sheltiel, and they fall in two totally different spots. And so most scholars agree that they're two totally different people with the same name. And so moving on past that, looking at verse 23, we see that when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. And this age of 30 is a very significant number. When Ezekiel began his ministry, he was the age of 30. When Joseph was appointed by Pharaoh, he was at the age of 30. When David became king, he was at the age of 30. When priests in the Old Testament were fully vested into their priesthood, they were at the age 
of 30. And when John the Baptist, as we saw previously before this section of Luke, begins his ministry, he was at the age of 30. So there's no small significance that Luke includes this in Jesus's, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, that Jesus was 30 years of age as he was entering into his ministry. And so we ask, why is the genealogy here? Why do we need Christ's genealogy before we get to the rest of the book of Luke, before we get to Christ's actual ministry in the book of Luke? Why is the genealogy important? And the answer is this, that the purpose of the genealogy validates the ministry of Christ. The purpose of the genealogy validates the ministry of Christ. It proves that Jesus isn't a self-appointed Messiah. Jesus wasn't a rogue savior creating his own way. He was submitted to what scripture said he would be, the son of man, the son of David, through this line, through this genealogy, um, he isn't his own self-appointed Messiah. He is submitted to what Scripture said he would be. And we ask, why is it placed right here? Why is it placed right here in the book of Luke before he begins his ministry, after he's been baptized? And we just have to wonder why Luke wouldn't put it right at the end, why he wouldn't put it at the very beginning like Matthew did. And I think it is this, that Jesus, through the baptism of John previously in this chapter, was consecrated for his ministry. As he preached on it, that the baptism of Christ was the consecration of the sacrifice. And that John descended from the tribe of Levi. It was only the Levitical priests who could consecrate or ordain sacrifices to be worthy of atonement for sin. And that John the Baptist baptized Christ, consecrated Christ for his ministry. And that now, through his lineage, Christ is validated for his ministry. And now, looking towards the rest of Luke, we get to unpack the rest of Christ's ministry, which would be probably the next three years of Sundays here at Ruah. Um, but before we get into what Christ's ministry is, what we see in Luke, we ask the simple question, why did Christ come? What is Christ's ministry? Why did Christ have to come? And the New Testament paints four very clear objectives to Christ's ministry here on earth. And it is the fourfold ministry of Christ. Number one, he came to fulfill scripture. Number two, he came to atone for sin. Number three, he came to save sinners. Number four, he came that the Father be glorified. And accidentally, it formed a great acronym, F-A-S-T, FAST, Fulfillment of Scripture, Atonement for Sin, Saving of Sinners, and the Father Glorified. This is Jesus' fourfold ministry that we will unpack for the rest of this time. So this first point, this F, that Christ fulfilled Scripture. He fulfilled the law and prophets. And theologians agree that Christ fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. And that number 300 is a rather conservative number. And some scholars have found over 500 texts that point to, refer to, or prophesy of Christ. But 300 is a safe number because it is the strictly messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that Christ has fulfilled in his life, in his ministry here on earth. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And early in Christ's ministry, he sets the tone for what to expect. The no, he is not a self-appointed Messiah. He's not a rogue savior paving his own way. But our Lord, he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. He was submitted to what scripture said he would be. And we look back at 
three or four of these Old Testament scriptures that Christ fulfilled. And the first one is going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you all turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll see this prophecy of Christ as the son of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And Solomon, David's son that we see in, this, in Matthew's record of the genealogy, is a beneficiary of this promise. But the ultimate aim of the scripture, the ultimate aim of this passage in 2 Samuel 7, is that the throne of David will be established forever through Christ, the son of David. That David's throne is Christ's throne and that Christ is the Son of David that will reign forever, for all of eternity. Christ is referenced as the Son of David 17 times in the New Testament. Christ did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Not only does Scripture prophesy of Christ being from David, but also from Abraham, who we see in the genealogy that Luke presents here as well. And Genesis 12, 7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And luckily, I don't have to explain this text. Paul writes in Galatians saying, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul validates this prophecy in Genesis, talking of the offspring, the seed of Abraham, being not his many offspring, not his many children, but the one who is to come, the one who is Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham as Scripture prophesied. Luke affirmed it and Christ fulfilled it, that he is indeed the offspring of Abraham. Not only is Christ the son of David and not only is he the seed of the forefather Abraham, Christ's fulfilling nature is also continued in being the new Adam. In this song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, we see these lyrics that we so often sing and it says, See the new and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. And we sing these words, we say these words, do we actually know what this means? Christ as a new and better Adam. Do we have a proper biblical understanding of the new and better Adam? One of Christ's most common titles in the New Testament is the Son of Man. And he used it almost 80 times in the four Gospels, most often referring to himself. And in Daniel 7, it prophesies that Christ is the Son of Man who's coming on the clouds he will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. It says the Son of Man will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And Christ says that He is the Son of Man. And the Son of God in Jewish times was not a divine title. David was called the Son of God. Adam was called the Son of God. Abraham was called the Son of God. But Christ as the Son of Man is a divine title that Christ claims for Himself. That He fulfills the Scripture prophesied in Daniel 7 that He is the Son of Man. 
And Adam, as the Son of God, was created in dignity in order to rule over creation, yet he failed. And Christ, the Son of Man, the new Adam, was given dominion over an eternal kingdom. One of the church fathers, Irenaeus, says this. He says, Just as sin came into this world through sin occasioned by a tree, so Jesus overcomes sin by his obedience on a tree. As death comes through Adam, life comes through Christ. As death comes through Adam, life comes through Christ. Adam was disobedient, and Christ was obedient, and he was submitted to what Scripture said he would be. Christ redeems what Adam predisposed to sin and death and destruction. And Paul unpacks this in Romans 5. And if you all turn with me to Romans 5, and we'll see Paul's discourse on death and life, death and Adam and life in Christ. Romans 5, and we will start reading in verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is Christ's kingdom here at work. The Son of Man fulfilling what he was prophesied to do. And one more short one in Genesis. We see Genesis 49.10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. We see Judah in this genealogy of well, in the genealogy as well. And right before this verse, Jesus is prophesied as a lion's cub. And this is confirmed in Revelation 5.5 when it says, the lion of Judah from the tribe of Israel. That Jesus is a descendant from David, from Abraham, from Adam, from Judah. Scripture predicted all of this, and Christ came, and he fulfilled this in his life. And Christ fulfills Scripture, and this genealogy affirms Christ's lineage through all these men. And Christ did not come to abolish, but he came to fulfill. And the second aspect of Christ's ministry, this A in the acronym, is Christ's atonement for sin. An atonement paid for sin is seen as this sacrifice that he makes on the cross. In Romans 3, Paul writes that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That Christ is the just and the justifier of those that have faith in him. And he can serve this role because he makes propitiation or he makes reparation. He atones for the sins of people. This point is building on top of the first point. That his sacrifice and atonement fulfills not only prophecy, but also fulfills the law. 
in the, what did I say? Um, my bad. The S and the T, the two coming parts of this sermon, also build on top of the first two points, that all of Christ's ministry is cohesive, is thematic, is consistent. It all builds on top of each other. And the atonement is the fulfillment of the law. And the book of Hebrews explains this concept really well, that Christ ended the sacrificial system. And if you will turn with me to Hebrews 7, we have two more passages to turn to, then you guys are done turning for the rest of the night. Um, but turn with me to Hebrews 7. We will see the ceasing of the priestly succession that was common in the Old Testament priesthood, that Christ ceased because of his eternal life. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Keep your finger right there. We're going to go to Hebrews 9 here in a second. But this model of Christ is that he reigns eternally as the great high priest because he lives forever. There's no priest that succeeds Christ because he lives forever. He reigns eternally as our great high priest. And we have justification through this sacrifice that he makes. So if you turn with me over a couple of chapters to Hebrews chapter 9, we'll see in Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 14, the example of the redemption through the blood of Christ. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ accomplished the work of this sacrificial system through his atonement for sins on the cross. And the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is a complex sacrificial system. And it always said that sin required sacrifice. We're not going to unpack the entire book of Leviticus right now and go through all the Jewish law. We'd be here for hours on end. But we must know that forgiveness of sin always required the shedding of blood. Forgiveness of sin always required the shedding of blood, always required sacrifice of various different animals for either intentional sins or unintentional sins, but it always required shedding of blood. And that is why this sacrificial atoning work is so significant. That Christ fulfilled the entire Jewish sacrificial system through this work on the cross, through his atonement. That sinners are now justified through Christ, not through animals. He fulfilled prophecies. He fulfilled the law. He made atonement for sin. And he is the justifier for his people. That through faith we are justified by the work Christ has done. And when the Father asks us, why should he let us in? We can point to Christ and say, Christ is our justifier. He has pardoned us. And third aspect of Christ's ministry is Christ's saving of sinners. This S in this acronym is saving of sinners. And it is the purpose of his atonement. It's the reason for the fulfillment of Scripture. It's all linking together. There's no mistake in the mission of Christ. There's total unity in the mission of Christ's ministry. 
In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, Yet while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for sinners. He made atonement for sinners. He fulfilled Scripture for sinners. And Christ is glorified because of His saving work of sinners. And Christ knew while He was dying for the sins of people that even though we would, He would die for us, even though we would still be unfaithful. That's the entire theme of the book of Hosea, that we have a faithful God. We are unfaithful people. And this didn't stop with Israel. It didn't stop once Christ came. It has been, is still, and will always be true until final glorification. We go through this process of justification through Christ's atonement, salvation from a saving of sinners. We are then sanctified until glorification. But even in the midst of the entire process, until glorification, we are still sinning against God. We are still disobedient to His Word. And Christ knew that we would continue to sin against Him. And we continue to be idolatrous, adulterous, blasphemous. We would still fall into pridefulness, slothfulness, drunkenness. We would still disobey. We would always disobey. And we would never cease to be sinners. Yet He still died for us. And the song Amazing Grace says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And Luke 15, we see these three parables that Jesus teaches of three lost things. The lost sheep the lost coin, and the prodigal son. At the very end of the parable of the prodigal son, the father of the son says he was lost and is now found. And this is the heart of Christ's ministry, to save sinners. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save which was lost. Christ says this of himself. He says that he is the Son of Man, as we've already talked about from the Daniel 7 prophets. He's the Son of Man, and he came to seek and save which was lost. That was the mission of his ministry. That is who he is. That is why he came. It is Christ's mission. Yes, he performed miracles. He performed healings. He led people. He discipled. He taught. He challenged. He mentored. He did so much more in his ministry. But the heart of his ministry that Christ says is the heart of his ministry is he came to seek and save the lost. And Paul writes to Timothy that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom he claims to be the foremost of these sinners. And that is why Christ came to save sinners like you, like me, like Paul, like Timothy, like Adam, like David, like Abraham, like any man or woman that has come from before us for all time, Christ has come to save them. Christ's ministry was performing the work of saving sinners through atonement, through his justifying work. The sinners may come to know him, believe in him, repent of their sins and be forgiven by him and be saved by Christ, all in Christ and in Christ alone. And this fourth aspect of Christ's ministry is the T. It is the Father glorified. And this is the culminating work of the first three parts of Christ's ministry. That Christ came to glorify the Father's name through the fulfillment of the law and prophets to glorify the Father. From the atonement He makes for sin to the glory of the Father and for the saving of sinners to the glory of the Father. His entire work, the significance of his ministry, his sacrifice, his humility, his power, it is all to the glory of the Father. In John 12, Christ calls out to God saying, Father, glorify your name. And this is right before the hour where Christ is taken to be crucified. He says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father answers with, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the purpose of was to glorify the Father's name. The purpose of Christ's entire ministry, of all the work that He does, is to the glory of the Father. 
Later on in John and Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, Christ prays to God said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave, to me, you gave me to do. And Christ was submissive to the Father's will. He's obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself as a servant, even though he was in very nature God. Christ says all this so that the Father would receive the glory. This is the might and the nature of our God. He orchestrated all of this on purpose for his own glory, for the sake of his own name. These inspired scriptures written thousands of years before Christ came predicted exactly what Christ came to do and to accomplish. He created a complex legal system that always required the shedding of blood for forgiveness for his own son to be the final atoning sacrifice for all. He would allow sin through Adam and through Eve to destine the entire human race to sin and destruction and death just so Christ could come and be the propitiation and save these sinners from death. And just so he could be the justifier, all so the Father could be glorified. This is the pervasive power of God that everything is on purpose. Everything is orchestrated for all time and through today. That everything God does is on purpose and is shown through his word, his story of redemption. That is the history of Christianity. And Christ glorifies the Father. And how much more should we? That Christ being in very nature God, still with his entire life, gives the Father glory. How much more does he do our praise and our prayer and our worship for saving us from the depths of hell? And this is redemptive history through this entire genealogy, and it culminates and it climaxes in Christ's work. And what is the purpose of it culminating, of it climaxing in Christ? It is to glorify the Father. And so how, how is this shaken out so perfectly? How has this been so finely tuned? It is because of the work of God, because of the work of the Father, so finally orchestrating all of this on purpose, because of his great sovereignty, he is able to do so. And this is why the genealogy is so important. The validation is the setup for Christ's ministry, that Christ may fulfill the scriptures, he may atone for sin, he may save sinners, he may glorify the Father in it all. And we don't just look at it or read past it or skip over it because we don't want to read through 77 names. We can actually take part in this genealogy. But how, how do you and I take part in the genealogy? Christ's ministry is still living, is still active today. He's the great high priest who reigns eternally. His kingdom and his power have no end. And Paul writes of how we get to take part in this genealogy in Romans 11. And he writes of how the Gentiles are grafted into the body of Christ through Christ. The salvation is no longer just for Jew, but also for Gentile. Now, as the purpose of Luke tracing his genealogy all the way back to Adam, the salvation is not just for Jew, it's for Gentile as well. And you and I, as Gentiles, are eligible for salvation through Christ and through Christ alone in this great family tree of redemptive history that we see painted in the genealogy here in Luke. That the new birth in Christ, through his salvation, being born again into his lineage through belief, through faith in him, we are able to take part in this family tree, in this history. And it's so much more significant than our own personal family trees. And we are to honor our father and mother, and we, to our, we are to love and enjoy our families, but we are not to elevate them to a pedestal where they do not belong, because our heavenly family tree is where we belong, if you are a blood-bought son or daughter of Christ. 
We are grafted into the family tree of Christ, born again, adopted by Christ. We are not flesh and blood relatives, but the love of adoption runs as deep as biological love. Ask Jared, being adopted from parents from another country, how deep the familial love of adoption runs for him is just as deep as biological love. Ask Max about the love his family has for his younger sister, love so deep that it makes Max want to adopt once he gets to fatherhood. Adoption and the love of adoption runs so deep, just as deep as biological love. And this is the love that Christ shows to you and to me by choosing to adopt us, choosing to love us when we were unworthy of his love. And this is the significant love that Christ has demonstrated for us that he has chosen to love us when we are transgressors of the law. The Romans 8 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, sons and daughters of Christ. We have received adoption through Christ's great act of love in choosing to adopt us. Born again in Christ and in Christ alone. New birth, adoption, we bear the name of our Lord. He has paid our debts in full, all to the glory of the Father. This genealogy validates Christ's ministry, this ministry of reconciliation, of fulfillment of scriptures, of justification for sinners, and of salvation for sinners, all until final glorification in eternity. It is the story of redemption in scripture, redeeming those transgressors, renewing a right spirit within them. Redemption story is not just the validation of Christ, even though this entire genealogy validates what his earthly ministry is. That's not the only purpose that it serves. This redemption story is also for you and for me, being born again into the family of God. The genealogy is our inheritance as believers. We see great names in this history. We see Adam, we see David, we see Abraham, we see Judah, we see Isaac, we see Jacob. We see so many names that we look to and we see in Scripture, in the Old Testament, how great these names are. And uniquely, there are so many more names that we are unfamiliar with, so many names that we don't know. There's no story of them besides what they are recorded in these genealogies. But without them, the lineage would not be complete. In the lineage, Resa is as important as David. In this lineage, Arnai is as important as Adam, because without these names, there would be no continuation of the lineage. These names matter because God has determined that they matter. They served a greater purpose than themselves. And the truth is still the same to this day, that for those who have been adopted, born again into this family, for you have breath this very second, it is all on purpose. We know that God makes no mistakes and his plan is perfect. He has orchestrated it since before creation all the way through now and until eternity. He gives life and he preserves life on purpose. And I don't know what burdens you tonight. I don't know what trials are present or what each one of you is going through, but I do know that you are not here by accident, that our God makes no mistakes in keeping life and in preserving life. And in his sovereignty, he has you exactly where he has intended you to be at this very second. And you serve a great purpose if you are of Christ. If you are in redemptive history, in this line, if you are a blood-bought believer, you serve a great purpose in the history of God's great story. And so be assured that God uses all his people in so many different ways to the glory of himself. 
that Christ's work in saving you wasn't just for you, it was to the glory of the Father. So Christ's name may be glorified. And it's been true, it's still true, and it will always be true that his mighty works bring glory to his great name. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these 77 names and this beautiful history of redemptive history, this beautiful story that is presented of sinners all the way through Christ, the climax in Christ. And we thank you for his fulfillment of the prophets of old, of the law of old. Lord, we thank you for his atonement for sin. We thank you that he saves sinners. And we praise you, Lord, that your name is most highly glorified in it all. So, Lord, make our lives a living sacrifice. Help us to glorify your name in all that we do. Let us see this example that Christ sets in bringing glory to the Father, Lord, and encourage us to give glory to your name because you so rightly deserve it, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen.